Right. Well, we are continuing through our series through the Sermon on the Mount, which we are calling Jesus' Donkey Kingdom Manifesto. So uh, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, which signified the kind of king he came to be and the kind of kingdom he came to establish. Uh, not one of physical power and status, as if he'd ridden on, on, on like some giant horse, a war horse, but one of righteousness, victory, and lowliness. A donkey messiah. And the Sermon on the Mount is essentially Jesus' manifesto. It's Jesus laying out for us what life in this donkey kingdom is supposed to look like, and thus who we as citizens of that donkey kingdom are supposed to be. Uh, and today's passage helps us to, not, to see not only more about how we're supposed to live in this donkey kingdom, but it also shows us more about the king of this kingdom. It gives us a, a different take on the word king here. So let's just get right into it. We're in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. I'll give you a minute to turn there in your Bibles. If you have a Bible app like Uversion or Bible Gateway, you can use your phones. Uh, or you can just Google the passage, type it into the Google search bar, and it'll bring up uh, the Bible Gateway reference, and we're using the NIV version. Uh, you can use your own Bibles if you brought those. You can use the church Bibles in the rows here. Um, and just so you know, if you're using one of these Bibles, or if you don't have a Bible at home, or you do have a Bible but it's full of these and thous and all kind of antiquated language, it just doesn't make any sense to you, uh, feel free to take one of these. It's yours. Have it. Um, also, if you have, if you have a friend who needs a Bible and doesn't have one, take it and give it to them. These are, these are for being used. <laughs> so, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything... Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. All right, so I'd like to take this passage and kind of break it down into three parts. Uh, we'll talk about the first part and then the last part, and then we'll go to the middle. Uh, so the first bits, verses 7 and 8. What's going on here? Uh, these verses are about persistence, uh, specifically persistence in prayer. They're repeating three times of the same general idea uh, was meant to reinforce the main idea behind them. Uh, and actually, in the original Greek, uh, these words were in their present tense. So it's asking, seeking, knocking, which kind of gets at the persistence idea. So it could even be read, ask and keep asking. Knock and keep knocking. Right? Seek and keep seeking. The idea is to be persistent in your prayers. And actually, Tara preached on this uh, the last time she preached. Um, and the reward for this persistence is that... If you ask, you'll receive. If you seek, you'll find. And if you knock on the door, it'll be opened. Right? Basically, you'll get what you came for. Right? But this isn't a blank check for believers. Okay? It's not like as long as we're persistent, we can get anything we want from God. Right? Like if we can just be annoying enough, God will cave. 
right? He'll, he'll, give, he'll give us what we want. That's not quite how it works <laughs> for this passage. See, God does value persistence, right? But God is also God, and we're not. And what that means is, no matter how many times we ask for something, if it's not the right thing, God may or may not answer with a yes. He's the wise father in this situation. We are not. It's like if your kids pestered you to stay up uh, after bedtime, right? They just continue to state their case. They, you know, they're trying these different angles on you, right? But you still give them the same answer, no, right? You might admire their persistence, right? I admire my kids' persistence sometimes. (laughs) But their continued asking for something that is actually not in their long-term best interest won't sway you won't change you from your answer of no it's still time for bed get upstairs right now my kids are actually pretty good with that uh, they're pretty good at the bedtime thing so they don't they don't get give too much fight at the end of the day uh, but just because you're persistent doesn't mean that you know what's best for your life or in general uh, this also assumes that um you know when you assume that you know you what when you assume that you're right about asking what, for God to do something for you, it assumes that God is there to meet your specific needs and desires when that's not always the case. God doesn't work for us. He cares for us. He loves us, as we're going to talk about later, but he is still God. Further to this, if you're familiar with the way that the Bible works, there are four retellings in the Bible uh, about the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, The the retellings, uh, they they share some of the same stories, right? Because they're just different perspectives on the same life of Jesus. So there are a lot of shared stories in them. The one that we've been in over the last many months for the Sermon on the Mount uh, comes from an account of one of Jesus' followers, Matthew. Uh, But in the account that comes from someone named Luke, uh, we get a little bit more context to this teaching. In Luke 11, 12, it talks about the Father giving the Holy Spirit to those who ask. It's more specific, which could really mean that that is the most important thing, the best thing that we could be praying for. If we're constantly banging on the door of heaven asking for more of his Spirit... That is a prayer that God will always and gladly answer with a yes. So then we skip a few verses. We get to verse 12, uh, and I'll connect all these sections uh, later at the end here. But in verse 12, we get a statement of the golden rule. Right? Verse 12, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So many of us have heard probably some variation of that, right? I had that in a lot of my classrooms growing up. It's not just a Bible thing. It's, you know, the world has kind of adopted that, right? So a couple of things with this, first of all. Uh, First of all, the golden rule uh, had been around for a little while when Jesus uses it here. Um, It wasn't brand new with Jesus, but it had been stated in the negative, right? Don't do to other people what you don't want them to do to you, right? So... But in, so in turning it around and stating it positively, Jesus moves it from the realm of restraint to being a statement of active love. 
Right? One of my sources put it this way. Christianity is not simply a matter of abstinence from sin. It is positive goodness. So then we see that Jesus says, this sums up the law and the prophets. This sums it all up right here. Right? Do to other people what you'd have them do to you. This sums up the law and the prophets. Meaning this sums up the Old Testament, essentially, is what he's talking about. To use our current terminology. But later in Matthew, uh, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus was asked what the most important commandment was. And he didn't say, do to others as you'd have them do to you. He says this, love, uh, Jesus replied, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So which is it, right? Is it, is the, is it, what actually sums up the law and the prophets? Is it the golden rule, or is it love God, love people? Well, well, as we look closer, there really isn't actually much of a problem or a conflict here. The golden rule is basically encompassed in the sentiment of love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's essentially the same sentiment as do to others as you would have them do to you. Love your neighbor as yourself. They're essentially saying the same thing. Uh, but Matthew 22, uh, the later portion, has Jesus adding the words, adding the love God part later to it. So there's a little bit about the first and, and last sections of today's passage. But let's get into the middle here. This is where I want to camp out a little bit. Verses 9 and 10 are actually kind of funny if, if you kind of get past the fact that maybe some of you have heard this a long time. Like if, if you've heard a lot of the Bible stuff a lot, it can, you, you lose the humor of it a little bit. But Jesus is being funny here, I, I swear. <laughs> uh, in his previous uh, teachings, he's kind of been ripping through some exaggerations and silly illustrations and stuff uh, in his manifesto, and this is no different. Uh, he gives some funny pictures of parenting. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? All right, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So they're ridiculous scenarios, right? Like saying, hey, uh, who here, if your kid asked for crackers, would tell him to go chew on a brick? Anybody chew on a brick? Okay. Or if they asked for a puppy, you'd chuck a tarantula on their face. Right? It, it's ridiculous. It's stupid. We would, we would not do that, I hope. And then Jesus calls us evil, which, you know, kind of hurts, but I'll allow it. Um... <laughs> But he does that to make a point. He's making a point. He's basically saying, look, you guys are tainted by sin. In everything that you do, in every judgment, in every whim, in, and yes, even in your parenting. But even with that, you still know how to love your kids. You still know how to give them good gifts. How much more so with me? He says, this means that even though we are fallen image bearers, we know how to do good things sometimes. But God, he's perfect. So how much more does he want to love his children when they come to him? And again, in Luke, it tells us that he wants to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So basically, we may have known some good parents here on earth. 
But this God, he's, he's on a whole different level of good. In our passage, Jesus uses the phrase, Father in heaven. How much more so your Father in heaven. We've had a lot of influences uh, in our lives uh, when we think about what being a father should or shouldn't be, right? On TV, uh, we've seen all different kinds, right? We've, we've seen the ignorant and stupid fathers like Homer Simpson in The Simpsons. We've seen the evil and malevolent fathers like Darth Vader in Star Wars. If you didn't know he was somebody's dad, it's been long enough. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not giving a spoiler alert for that. And we've even seen some dads who are really awesome dads. Sometimes they make mistakes, but they manage to wrap it all up in a nice bow at the end of 22 minutes, like Carl Winslow from Family Matters. Right? I say, yes, yeah. I realize some of these references are dated, but I make no apologies. But most of us are probably a lot more influenced by our real fathers. Some biological some adopted, some stepfathers, whatever they may be, our earthly representations of father figures shape so much of what we think a father should or shouldn't be. And we all come from such, a, such varied backgrounds on that. Right? Some of us don't have a father that we can remember. Some of us have a sparse relationship mediated through the court system. Still others of us have wonderful and present and faithful fathers. Some of us have addicted fathers. Or emotionally abusive or distant fathers. In this room alone, we've got all kinds of backgrounds represented. So when we hear that God is a good father, what goes through our minds? I remember back in Brooklyn, where we were living for a while, we had a friend who was having some real trouble with this analogy. See, the idea of God as father had always been a real comfort to me because my dad was really good in a lot of respects. But this friend of ours had an abusive father. And it was bad. So her view of God as father rather than being a comfort, was actually an obstacle for her to overcome when it came to God. And that was the first time that I would even thought about the idea that the, the thought of God as Father might not actually be received as good news for some who just don't have a good model for that paradigm. But the idea of our Heavenly Father is not simply a magnification of earthly fatherly characteristics. Right, in some cases it is, Right, it, it, you know, and we could say that, you know, hey, if our dad was loving, God is loving too. So that helps us a little bit. We can get a little bit of a comparison there. That's true. But it almost cheapens the love of God because God's love is so much beyond anything that we've ever known in any of our earthly relationships. It's not just saying, okay, who's the best father uh, the world has ever known and multiply that by a million. Right? No, we don't even have the same scales for comparison. God is on such a different plane for this. You know, looking at the worst father ever, God's not like that. Because he's so much better. 
looking at the father of the year types. God isn't like that. He's so much better. He's so far beyond. So yes, we can learn a little bit about our Heavenly Father by seeing fathers who were responsible and kind and compassionate and healthy, all of those things. But we can't then just make the leap and say that's exactly what God is like. We need to create a whole new category for this father. He's all alone in it, in that category. There are none to compare him to. We have no choice but to use imperfect comparisons. <laughs> that's all that's open to us. So yes, he needs his own category. In fact, this is what this teaching would have done to the original hearers of this. When Jesus was talking about this in the Sermon on the Mount, when he's on the side of the mountain and lots of people come up and they're hearing this, this would have hit them too. Right? They would have been confronted with a whole new paradigm for God as well. Right? Sure, they would have had a few chuckles at the silly illustrations that God used. But then hearing how much God loves his children would have hit them like a plank in the eye. It's an allusion to a previous... You, you got it? Okay. <laughs> See, for many of these people, what they knew of God would have been told to them and modeled for them by the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders back then. And for the Pharisees, it was so much about rule-keeping. And, and the average person, the average Jewish person, would, would usually have felt pretty discouraged by the Pharisees, not encouraged by them, because they, their righteousness couldn't stack up to the Pharisees. They couldn't measure up. It was never enough. So instead of a good father who hears and loves his children, they were operating under the paradigm of a father who had unachievable standards and was impossible to please. This understanding of God that Jesus was giving here would have hit different. So in giving this new paradigm of God as a God who hears his children and loves them, Jesus was telling them to do something that I think some of us might need to do this morning when it comes to how we perceive the king of this donkey kingdom. We need to rewind, reorient, and reimagine. What do I mean by those? First, we need to rewind. We need to walk back our previous conceptions of the word father as it relates to God. We need to, we need to go back, right? Start from scratch and say, whether my earthly father was great or a real tool, my heavenly father is not like that. He's bigger, he's better, he's more loving, he's more compassionate, he's more wise than anything I've ever known before. So we need to rewind. Then we need to reorient. We need to move from earthly comparisons to spiritual ones. And again, yes, we can get glimpses from our earthly fathers who were compassionate and kind and wise and healthy, all of that. But even those are just shadows. They're just shadows. We need to look at the perfect love of our perfect father who sent his son in our place, in our place, to live the life we couldn't live. To die the death that we should have died. To rise again to give us hope. We need to reorient our picture of Father to Him. And once we rewind and reorient, 
then we can reimagine. And this is the fun part. Because right, those first couple of steps, they can take some work, right? some effort to disentangle ourselves from previous conceptions. But now we get to reimagine our Heavenly Father. Free from what earthly fathers have shown us or told us. We see Jesus who modeled a father who loves, who listens, who cares, who spoke with authority, who overcame death through death, who ascended into heaven, who hears us now and is faithfully with us forever in his Holy Spirit in us. We need to rewind, reorient, and reimagine. So this is great, but what does this have to do with being donkey kingdom citizens? Right? Well, it can help us to see what kind of person is in charge of this kingdom. Our king is righteous, he is victorious, but he is also a good, good father. And his citizens, us, we are to do our best to emulate him in all of our relationships. So these three sections, they fit together. We receive his spirit when we ask for it. When we're banging on the doors to heaven and we ask for his spirit, he will give his spirit to us, which empowers us to live the donkey kingdom life of love and care that is modeled from our heavenly father, which then results in us treating others the ways that we, in the ways that we would want to be treated. If your view of God is one of a father who's impossible to please, if it's a picture of a father who will only speak to you if you've rubbed your face in the dirt or jumped through certain impossible hoops, or is maybe too busy in world affairs to hear the cries of a singular person in Chester County, Pennsylvania, then you need to rewind, reorient, reimagine. And maybe that starts off by confessing to someone uh, that your view of God is messed up by the poor representations that you've seen all around you. You know, oftentimes we can't help the models that we've been given. We don't have any choice over who our fathers were or are. So we can't control those kinds of influences, and that's okay. But maybe it starts off by acknowledging my view of God has been distorted by all of that. Talk with someone who you can trust and walk through the scriptures together, especially looking at the person of, of Christ, the full representation of the Father who walked among us. Uh, we are all still figuring out how to walk the way of our donkey Messiah here at Marsh Creek. <laughs> but we're doing it together. We do this faith in community, constantly reorienting each other back in the Jesus direction. So let's go to God now together to ask him to give us more of his spirit to help us faithfully rewind, reorient, and reimagine our king and our father.